This morning's scripture reading is from John, chapter 6, 25 through 35, and 48 through 51. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The word of the Lord. So I wanna begin this morning by telling you a story and then asking you a question. And the story is this, my, uh, my wife's family is from Taiwan, and uh, we got to spend some time there a couple of years ago, and also in Japan for a little bit. And uh, while we were there, there was something that really amazed me. You know, um, Asia in general, but, uh, but Taiwan, and especially Japan, are countries that um, have very low levels of religious participation. They're very secular places. But when we were visiting some of the temples there, I saw something that really surprised me. I was surprised how busy these temples were. Uh, what happens is you can walk in and you bring like a bag of chips or some fruit and you burn some incense. And I asked some people, what's happening? And they said, well, you bring an offering and, um, and, then, and then you can pray for something like, um, like friendship or romance or career success or health or really anything. And I was amazed by this because even though obviously there were a lot of tourists there, um, it was very evident that there were also a lot of people there who were residents, people who lived and worked in the city, very secular place. And it was amazing to me because as I reflected on it and I thought, not only are we seeing people who are intently seeking satisfaction for the deepest desires of their heart, They're doing so in a way that at least hints at the possibility that that there might be some greater force at work in this universe that could be a part of those desires. And that leads me to my question. Are you happy? And actually, happy might not be the best word. Happiness can be kind of superficial. Uh, Maybe a better word is, is satisfied or content. But that's what I mean when I ask you, are you happy? Are you satisfied? Are you content? That's what I'm asking you about this morning. You know, and the reason I ask is because as a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of people about spiritual things, and I very frequently hear people say things like, you know, 
Religion and spirituality is fine. If that works for you, that's great. But I don't really feel a need for that in my own life. I don't need God to be happy. I don't need God to live a satisfied life. A lot of people say that. And yet, we live in a time when there are an increasing number of reports that show pretty convincingly that levels of depression, anxiety, and suicide have risen dramatically over the last several years. And yet we live in a world that seems to be making so much progress. And we have made progress scientifically, technologically, um, economically. And yet with all of this progress, um, rates of anxiety and depression and suicide are greater than they've ever been before. And, And so I just would ask you, are you happy? Are you satisfied? Because I have a proposal for you this morning, and you're obviously free to disagree with me, or if you want to catch me after the service and push back a little bit, you're more than welcome to do that. But here's my proposal. My proposal is we are far less satisfied and far more discontented than we want to admit. We are far less satisfied and far more discontented than we want to admit. Um, Do you ever struggle with things like anxiety or depression? I don't know if any of you struggle with things like relationship problems or loneliness or or self-doubt or insecurity or um, addiction or eating disorders or um, the pressure to perform or or even the, uh, the, the notion that these little glowing rectangles might be sucking the life out of us. I don't know if you struggle with any of those things or other things, but still I want to ask you, are you happy? If there's even a twinge of hesitation in your answer, or if you're wondering what kind of role God might possibly play in these things, then I want to invite you to look at this passage that we just read. In in this passage, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So he's using bread uh, as, as a window to open up this conversation, this as a window on our search for satisfaction. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, what does he mean by that? We're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see, first of all, that we're all looking for bread. Secondly, that none of the places we look can satisfy. And lastly, how we can find the bread that really does satisfy. All right? First, we're all looking for bread. Second, none of the places we look can satisfy. And last, how we can find the bread that does satisfy. So first, we're all looking for bread. Um, This passage takes place right after one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever performed. He took uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, and he um, miraculously fed thousands of people um, with just those five loaves and, and two fish. And after that, Jesus left, but then the people went looking for Jesus. And in verse 25, where we pick up in our passage, uh, it says that when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what does he mean by that? Jesus is referring back to this miraculous feeding that he just did, and he's saying that the bread was a sign of something. The bread was was not just the physical bread. It was a sign that was pointing to something else. Um, There's a line from T.S. Eliot's famous poem, Four Quartets, where he says, we had the experience but missed the meaning. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. You had this experience of physical bread, 
But, but you missed the meaning of what the bread was pointing to. The bread was pointing to something else. Okay, what was the bread pointing to? Jesus tells us in the very next verse, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, when he says life, understand there's actually two or three words in the Bible that can refer to life. One of them is the word bios, um, from which we get our word biology. Bios life refers to physical, biological life. But then there's another word for life, um, and it's the word zoe. If you have ever known anybody called Zoe, that's where that name comes from. Zoe life is not referring to physical, um, biological life. It refers more to the quality of life. It refers to a, a deeper, richer, higher, fuller kind of life. Zoe life is life that's really living. So when Jesus says... Um, when he talks about the food that endures to eternal life, he's saying the food that endures to eternal zoe, okay? It's not just physical, um, biological existence. It's this life that's really living. Now, a lot of people look at that phrase, eternal life, and they think, oh, eternal life. I know what that is. That's just life that goes on forever and ever, and it, it never ends. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. The focus here is more on the quality of life, not the length of life. Because let me ask you a question. Um, if you could take the life that you're living right now and just extend it forever, would you? And be careful how you answer. I'm talking about the life you're living right now. Your life with all of your self-doubts and insecurities and hang-ups and issues and anxieties and, and fears and worries. That life, okay? If you could take the life you're living right now and just extend it forever, would you? Some of you are thinking, eh, I've got about 50. I could give it 50 years. <laughs> Others of you are thinking, I've got 10. 15 if I can pick one of my good days. And others of you are done right now. And that's not funny. It's not a joke. There's a big difference between, between eternal existence and eternal life. I'm guessing that if, if, if you had the opportunity to take the life you're living right now and just extend that life forever, most of you probably would not do that. Why? Because that's not eternal life, that's eternal existence. There's a pastor in New York, Tim Keller, very famous. He says, you know the Bible has a word for that? It's called hell. There's a big difference between eternal existence and eternal life. When Jesus talks about eternal life, yes, he's talking about something that goes on forever, but even more than that, he's talking about a quality of life, a quality of living, because he doesn't say eternal bios, he says eternal zoe. It's not just eternal existence, it's eternal life. Or we could say it like this. There's a big difference between needing something physically and feeding on something spiritually. For instance, physical bread is the kind of bread you need in order to continue your existence, but then there's another kind of bread you're feeding on it. Um, what is it we say you know, when we eat a really good meal? What do we say? Nom, nom. Every single person in this room has something that you look to, something that you're pointing to, and you're saying, if I could just get this in my life, nom, nom. Then I'd really be living then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. You're not just needing it, you're feeding on it. It's what you go back to over and over again. That's what you rely on, what you trust in. It's what you put your hope in. 
It's what you keep looking to over and over and over again to give you the life you're really looking for. And that's our first point. Everybody's looking for bread. But secondly, none of the places that we look can satisfy. Jesus says, do not work for the bread that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, Jesus is telling us two really important things there. Number one, he's saying, first, you're already feeding on something. Okay, he says, there is a food that you're already working for. But number two, he's saying, you're feeding on the wrong thing. Because notice he says, it's that food perishes. He's saying the default mode of the human heart is, is to look for this zoe kind of life in things that don't have the power to give it to you. And then he turns right around after that and he said, there's only one place that you can get it, it's me. Because in verse 35, he says, I am the bread. Jesus is saying, unless you're feeding on me, um, everything else will perish. Unless you're feeding on me, you'll starve. Unless you're feeding on me, everything else you feed on in this world, it can't possibly give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. It can't. It won't endure because it, it's, it's all perishing. So um, if you're somebody who says, I don't think that I need God in my life to be happy, then I want to say something respectfully, but I still need to say it. Jesus is challenging you here. Really, he's challenging all of us because what Jesus is really saying is you may not think you have a God in your life, but you do because every single person is feeding on something. And whatever you're feeding on, that is your God. And if it's not me, Jesus says, then everything you're feeding on will perish. It can't endure. It can't possibly give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. No one ever explained this any better than St. Augustine. St. Augustine was a North African theologian who lived in the 4th and 5th century. Um, St. Augustine asked the question, why are we so discontented? Why are we so unsatisfied with life? The reason, he said, is because our loves are out of order. What does he mean by that? He said, look at, look at the world around you. Look at the things that fill your life. Your, your life is filled with all kinds of wonderful things, your family, your home, your career, your health. Uh, all of these things contribute to having this Zoe kind of life. So you may be passionate about your career or your children. You may be passionate about some cause that you're involved in, like education or social justice and all of these things are wonderful. They all contribute to this Zoe kind of life. The problem, he said, is not that you love these things. You should love them. The problem is when those loves are out of order. And the way you know what you really love is not by listening to what you say. It's by looking at what you do. So, for instance, truth is a really good thing. So is popularity. But most people would acknowledge that truth is probably more important than having people like you. But if you ever shade the truth in order to keep yourself from looking bad, you don't want people to think um, poorly of you, then what you've just done is you've shown that you really do love popularity more than you love truth. Your loves are out of order. There will always be breakdown in your life. Things perish. Or uh, family is a really good thing. So is success. And both of those things are worthy of your love, but most people would say, yeah, family's probably worth more than success. But if you ever 
spend so much time at work that your family rarely, if ever, sees you that shows that you really do love success more than you love your family. Your loves are out of order. It's going to lead to breakdown in your life. Things perish as a result of that. When Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, he's saying, don't let your loves get out of order. Yes, this world is filled with all kinds of wonderful things, um, that are worthy of your love, but, but there's only one, room for one thing in the top slot of your heart. And Jesus is saying, if, if that top slot, if it's not me that's in that top slot, everything else is going to perish. Everything else is going to be out of order. It's going to lead to breakdown in your life. By the way, that's what the Bible calls sin. A lot of times it's easy to think sin, oh, sin is, is doing bad things. Sin is living this immoral, profligate, debauched lifestyle. Sin is, you know, there's this arbitrary um, list of rules. And if you break one of the rules, well, you sinned. But that is far too shallow a view of sin. Jesus is showing us in this passage, in fact, the Bible shows us over and over again that sin is not so much doing bad things as it is taking good things and then turning them into ultimate things. It's, it's when you take something other than God and you make that the ultimate love, you put that in the top slot. Whatever it is, you're feeding on it. Whatever it is, you're working for it. It's like those temples that I saw in Taiwan and Japan. Uh, all the other gods say, you know, satisfy me, and maybe I'll satisfy you. That's the way religion works. The operating principle of religion is, here, here's what you got to do, okay? you got to obey the rules. You have to practice these principles or engage these disciplines. You have to work really hard. Religion says, satisfy me. If you work hard enough, then maybe I'll satisfy you. That's what the gods say. And maybe some of you say, well, that's why I'm not a religious person. Um, but think about it. You understand, if you think about this, that secularism operates according to the exact same principle. If there is no God, if this world is all there is, then if you want to find satisfaction for the deepest desires of your heart, then it's all up to you. You're the one who has to work for that. Jesus is saying that whatever you're feeding on, that's your God. And if you're not feeding on Jesus, everything else will perish. None of the other things that you feed on can possibly give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. I mean, look at our culture nowadays. I mean, there are wonderful things going on in our world right now. But, but look at, are we really as happy as we want to be? There's never been a time in our world when we've had more individual freedom and yet we've never had more angst about our identity. There's never been a time when we've had more consumer options available to us, and yet we've never been emptier. There's never been a time when, when there's been more wealth in the world, and yet we've never seen more economic inequality in the world. There's never been a time um, when we've had more advanced technology, and yet we're more addicted than we've ever been as a society, right now, it seems like the opportunities for happiness are, are more endless, more abundant than they've ever been at any other time in history, and yet we've never been unhappier, we've never been emptier. We are far less satisfied and far more discontented than we really want to admit. Why? Because we're working for bread that perishes. We're feeding on something that doesn't have the power to give us what we're really looking for. 
By far, still the best description of this comes from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which first arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not speaking of what would be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The spouse may be a good spouse, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and the job may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. If, if you look at the most famous, the most successful, the most wealthy, the most beautiful, um, the most privileged people in the world right now, every single one of them will be the first one to tell you that none of that stuff really satisfies They'll be the first one to tell you that all of that stuff, it's perishing. It can't endure. And again, it's not that those things aren't wonderful things, not that they're not good things. It's just that they don't have the power to give us the satisfaction that we're really looking for. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that everyone's looking for bread, and we've seen that none of the places we look can satisfy. Lastly, we need to see how can we find the bread that satisfies. If you go back to verse 27... Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So Jesus is saying that this bread, this eternal life, is something that he gives to us. Now, it'd be natural or maybe easy for us to look at what Jesus says here and think, oh, okay, um, Jesus is saying he has the bread and he's the distributor. He's the dispenser. He, he's the distribution house. But that's not exactly what he says. He, he says in verse 35, not just that I have the bread, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is radically different from every other religion and every other approach to life. If you look at every other religious leader in the history of the world, whether Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius, or pick one, it doesn't matter. They all basically said the same thing. They all basically said, look, if you want to find bread, okay, and however that religion defines bread, whether it's salvation or enlightenment or nirvana or moksha or divine consciousness, whatever it might be, they all basically said, look, if you want to find the bread, then do what I say and you'll be able to get the bread. That's what they all said. But Jesus comes along and he says something that no one before him ever said and no one after him has ever said. Jesus doesn't just say, I can show you how to get the bread. Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread that satisfies. Jesus is the one who restores your relationship with God. He's the one who heals the deepest struggles and sins of your life. He's the one who ultimately is going to renew the whole cosmos. Jesus is the one who satisfies the deepest longings and the deepest desires of your heart. Jesus is the bread that satisfies. So here's the question. How do you feed on him? How do you actually get this bread in your life? You know, the people had the same question in, in verse 28. They asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? You see, they're still thinking religion. 
They're still thinking, okay, Jesus, what do we have to actually do in order to get this bread in our lives? And amazingly, Jesus says in verse 29, here's the work you have to do. Believe in him whom God has sent. That's Jesus. Jesus is saying, it's not actually a work. You have to believe in me, uh, really trust in me, rely on me, put your hope in me. The same thing you're doing with all these other things that you're looking for num-num, the same thing you're already doing in order to try and find that life that's really living, instead of doing that with those things, you have to do that with Jesus. Trust in them, rely on them. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the first thing you have to do. You have to see that You don't perform for this bread. You don't work for this bread. You simply trust in the one who already did all of the work necessary to give you the bread. It's Jesus. And who is Jesus? This is probably the most mind-blowing thing in this whole passage. In verse 35, we've seen Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He repeats it again in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Now, at the beginning of that statement, Jesus uses two words in the Greek. uh, Ego, which means I, and then ami, which means I am. And in Greek, the verb contains the subject. So literally what Jesus is saying is I, I am the bread of life. Now, some of you might say, big deal. But here's why it's a big deal. Greek is like a lot of other languages, including our own. You don't always use all the words that you could to express what you need to say. There are lots of words you could use, but we have shorthand ways of speaking in contemporary ways of speaking, and and Greek is the same. So for instance, in, in English, you know, you might send somebody a message that says, still coming to the party. You don't say, I am still coming to the party. It would be superfluous. People understand what you're saying. You just say, still coming. You don't use all the words that you could use because a lot of times to use all of the words that we could use for correct English, that would feel stiff. It would feel overly formal. And and what Jesus is saying here is the same exact thing. When he says, ego a me, I, I am the bread of life, it's overly formal language. He's using words that he doesn't need to use unless he's trying to draw attention to something, and he is. What is it? In Exodus chapter 3, Moses met God on Mount Sinai, and he asked God his name, and God said, my name I am who I am. Tell the Israelites, I am sent you. I am is the name of God, the God of the universe, the God who created the heavens and the earth. I am is his name. And any Jew back in Jesus' day would have understood immediately what Jesus is saying here. He's saying he is God. Jesus is God. That's what he's saying here. And and so how does this bread give us life? How does Jesus give us life? In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In other words, if you feed on Jesus, you will have life, zoe life, a life of contentment and satisfaction. It'll be the satisfaction of everything you're looking for. But how does that happen? Jesus says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now think about this. How does bread nourish you? Like if you're starving, you know, bread literally can save your life. But how does that happen? In order to give you life, the bread has to, it has to be broken. In order for you to live, the bread has to perish. It has to fall apart. 
The only way that you can have life is for the bread to give its life for you. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. His body, his flesh was broken. He's the bread that was broken so that you could have life. Jesus is the bread that perished so that you could have a life that endures forever. There is no other religion, no other God like that. It's the only God who says on the cross, I have given my life for you. You don't have to satisfy me. I have done everything necessary in order to satisfy you. So how do we actually feed on that? How do we actually take that into our lives? Let me offer you two thoughts really briefly as we close. And the first one is this. Actually, I would point you back to something we said last week. One of the main ways you feed on Jesus is through his word. Jesus, just a little bit later in this passage, is talking to his disciples, and he says, my words that I speak to you, they are spirit and life, zoe. My words are life. You have to learn how to feed on his word. We do that, you do that on your own. You do that as part of a community. You do that daily, and some of you may think, really? It's just that simple? It's that easy? Come on, give me something more, you know, mysterious, something more mystical, something more profound than that. But really, you already know how this works because you're already doing it with all kinds of other things in your life. What does it mean to feed on the Word? You know that you're already feeding on things. When you open up Facebook or Instagram, what do we call it? Your feed, right? You're already feeding. What if you were to take half that time? Or, or, you know, our phones give us little updates now. How much time did we spend on the screens last week? What if you were to take, I don't know how much time you spend, but 25% of that time away from the screen to feed on Jesus and his word. That would change your life. And if you don't believe me, try it. And if it doesn't work, come back to me and we'll talk about it. But the first thing that happens is we have to learn how to feed on Jesus in his word, feed on him through prayer over what we're reading and learning about as we get into his word, as we get to know Jesus better, because that's where it happens. But secondly, as you learn to do that, the second thing that happens is you learn how to, how to take those things you're feeding on and then apply them to your life, begin working those things into the inner dialogue of your heart as you go throughout your day. So for instance, maybe you're going throughout your day and, and all of a sudden you're feeling anxious. What you do is, is you ask yourself, what am I so anxious about? And then when you find out what it is, you say, this is not my bread. Jesus is my bread. You talk to that thing. You talk to your soul. You are not my life. Jesus is my life. The more you say that, the more you pray that, the more that becomes the internal dialogue of your heart. You know, um, self-affirmation therapists always used to say, you know, self-affirmation is so important. When you get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, hello, beautiful, you just affirm yourself. And I think, you know, there's maybe some therapeutic benefit in that, but by far, far more important and more beneficial to your heart and your soul than self-affirmation is Jesus' affirmation. You learn how to apply the gospel in the daily events of your life. Or maybe, for instance, you're going through your day and you're, you're, all of a sudden you realize you're in conflict with somebody. You're angry at somebody because they're doing something that's threatening something you really care about. So what you do is you look at that thing and you say, this is not my bread. Jesus is my bread. This is not my life. Jesus is my life. 
The, the more that internal dialogue becomes second nature to you, the more you're feeding on Jesus and, and applying those things to your life, the more that begins to change your life. It begins to free you from the anxiety, makes you a less anxious person, a more forgiving person. It frees you from the anxiety, frees you from the anger. Friends, Jesus is the bread who satisfies. Are you feeding on him? Have you learned how to do that? The more you learn how to feed on Jesus, the more you make him the center of your life, the more satisfied and the less discontented you will be because you're no longer working for the bread that perishes. You're you're feeding on the bread that endures to eternal life. Jesus is the bread from heaven that came down. He gave his life. He, He was broken in order to give you life. Feed on him. Let's pray.